The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hello and welcome to another edition of Stockhead's Rock Yarn. I'm your host, Peter Strachan. Today we are once again looking at the market for rare earth elements and the outlook for these important industrial elements. To assist us, we're delighted to be joined by Tim Harrison, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Ionic Rare Earths. Uh, welcome, Tim. So, Tim, Ionic is about to commence drilling at its Makutu Rare Earth Project in Uganda near the capital, Kampala. Can you explain why rare earths are so topical and important right now? Well, thanks, Peter, and um, thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, Chinese production of rare earths uh, basically dominates uh, current worldwide production. So China is producing around about 85 to 90% of the current world, uh, world rare earth production, and they dominate the downstream separation. Um, so from a global supply risk, um, on the back of what the world has experienced recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, world governments and downstream users are much more, I think, aware of the supply risk and the influence that the China now clearly demonstrates over the rare earth market. Uh, they're given the importance of rare earth in applications from clean green technologies to defence applications and communication. Um, these are strategic applications where Chinese production, I think, to some degree, puts at risk the world's ability to adopt new technologies. Yeah, indeed. And so these rare earths are used in uh, permanent magnets, which are used in generators for uh, wind turbines, and they're used in electric vehicles for in the, uh, the batteries, and there's phosphors and a lot of strategic elements. And we've heard quite a bit of talk coming out of Washington between, in fact, Canberra and Washington about the strategic importance of these metals in defence and other applications. That's exactly right. So further to that, uh, the permanent magnets and the application in electric vehicles, wind turbines, um, you've got defence applications, um, ceramics, phosphors, catalysts. So, you know, the application and deployment of rare earths, uh, not to mention, you know, there's a growing, um, I suppose, momentum towards improved communications. So 5G communication is effectively partially enabled by, by implementing rare earths. Um, these technology uh, are, are unlocked by, by strategic supply of what have been termed the critical rare earths. Um, so back around about 15 years ago, world governments identified the supply of a number of, of the, the, the rare earths as being critical supply given the fact that they are simply, the, the, the existing production is dominated by China. Is this is neodymium and presidium? Uh... Yeah, so the, the critical rare earths, um, you've got uh, neodymium, um, dysposium, europium, terbium and yttrium. Uh, they are yeah. the, the five that are typically classified as, as critical rare earths. 
But then there's other rare earths that are equally as important and, and growing in importance. Uh, Presidium, um, you've got Erbium. So these, these are, are rare earths that are starting to be more uh, acutely uh, identified as being strategically important for our adoption of new technologies. Okay. So, Tim, getting back to Uganda, what's the aim of your upcoming drilling program and when will the results be known to the market? So the plan is to, to drill roughly around um, another 3,700 metres, which would uh, complete the 4,000-metre program that we, we initiated back in March. We got through about 240 metres before we had to suspend the drilling program on the back of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so now we've got um, sanctions and, and restrictions lifted within Uganda, which has enabled us to get back into the field. We're mobilising the drill rig to site. We'll commence drilling next week. The idea is to, to drill the 3,700 metres, which will give us a better idea of the, the, the mineralisation across the 26-kilometre um, corridor that we've got across our three tenements. Um, and the idea will be to, to significantly grow the resource um, that we recently updated. So, you know, by the end of the year, I'm hopeful that the drilling will be completed, assays back in, and it will be great to have that resource upgraded substantially. Excellent. Um, so Ionic studies so far, Tim, have indicated a low capital cost development is possible to produce a mixed rare earth element concentrate uh, from the Matuku, uh, Makutu project, um, what additional steps along the feasibility study are now are required? So, Peter, at the moment we're in a scoping study. Um, so the aim of that is to, to have the scoping study or preliminary economic assessment completed um, by November. Uh, beyond that, we'll then be looking to, once we've got a better handle on the overall economics of the project, onto feasibility studies. Um, potentially, we'd be also looking at doing a demonstration um, plant or field trials to further, I suppose, de-risk the project development. Um, so that would give us, I, I suppose, I'm looking at a timeline there probably up to, to 26 months. Um, so there's a lot of work that we'd like to do. Um, the idea will be that we'll, we'll try to look and focus on the activities that, that I suppose, greatly de-risk the, the advancement of the project. Um, over the course of the next four months, we focus on the completion of the scoping study and the low capital, I suppose, perspective of the project um, is effectively driven by the very, very simple processing nature of ionic clays. Um, you know, the Chinese basically dominate heavy rare earth production through their processing of, of ionic clays uh, in southern China. Ionic clays are predominant in southern China. Outside of China, there's four other large um, ionic clay deposits that, that we're aware of. The two of those are in South America. Uh, they are both being developed um, at the moment. There's another one in Madagascar uh, and ourselves in um, in Uganda. Where we sit, um, I think we're going to be at the upper end of those um, those resources once we've completed our drilling, um, which gives us, I think, a tremendous amount of 
um, long long life potential um, for rare earth production, and with that predominantly heavy rare earth and critical rare earth production, um, with a very low capital intensity. The capital intensity is effectively, as I, as I mentioned before, driven by the, the simple processing, um, the, the ionic clay, the, the rare earths exist within the ionic clay in a, in a chemical form, not a mineral form, which means that we can extract the rare earths by simple salt washing. We don't have to crack any rare earth minerals. Um, we simply wash the, the clay with a, a salt water solution, a little bit of acid, um, and then once the rare earth is in the solution, we can effectively, straightforwardly precipitate the rare earths as a, as a mixed rare earth um, oxalate or a carbonate. And then depending on downstream separators, and who, we, who we align with strategically, we could make a, an oxide, a carbonate or a chloride product. Yeah, so it's all about the chemistry with these deposits, aren't, isn't it? And each one seems to be slightly bespoke and they're not all the same, it's like a copper sulphide or a gold mining project. It's all about the chemistry as uh, to develop these projects. That's right. I think we've, we've done a lot, of, uh, a lot of work over the course of the last 6 to 12 months in benchmarking and understanding the technologies, chemistries applied at different ionic clay deposits. Uh, a lot of work understanding the advancement that the Chinese have made over the last 50 years in treating ionic clays um, and looking to, to, I think, leverage the, the best out of all of those, um, those applications and tailoring it for, for Makutu. Um, the nature of the, the work that we've done over the course of the last six months predominantly has been around taking the initial variability work that we did late last year and tweaking the chemistry to try and drive higher extractions. Um, we've been successful to date, and I think that there's still quite a bit of juice in the berry left as far as trying to improve the overall uh, processing uh, extractions. So, Tim, what are the, the, the real value-driving elements in the product mix that you're hoping to get out of the Makuta project? So we will derive um, the bulk of our revenue is effectively being driven by the heavy rare earth elements uh, and neodymium and presidium. Um, we've got a very low content of lanthanum and cerium relative to, say, a mineral rare earth concentrate. Um, so we actually make a value-added product in a chemical form um, with very, very simple processing, very low-cost processing, which results in a high payability product. So, you know, where we're driving to with the Makutu project is effectively a low capital intensity, but a high margin product. Um, in doing that, um, we are able to position ourselves with a much lower, I, I think, um, risk profile in the development of the project. Uh, the low capital nature of the capital um, requirement to get into production, the low operating cost and the high value product means that to some degree we will be a little bit, we will be insulated from potentially Chinese increase in production of rare earths, which I think has limited other rare earth projects from um, 
moving from the, the development or from the, from the study phase into the development phase. Yeah. So where, where do you think the likely end users or, say, customers for your intermediary rare earth product uh, are most li- likely to be located? Um, I think governments around the world, governments and end users around the world will be naturally um, attracted to our product given the, the low downstream processing requirements. There's no cracking required. There's no radionuclides, so no radiation issues, no uranium and thorium issues to manage. Effectively, what they'll be getting is a chemical precipitate, which can go into a, a, a plant anywhere around the globe and can be then separated into the various rare earth elements for downstream processing. So it doesn't come with the baggage of a rare earth concentrate, a mineral concentrate. Um, it can effectively be injected into to, to existing separators, into bespoke small separators that will effectively have a very, a very low um, discharge requirement. Um, so we, I think we're actually making a, a, a very attractive product for all downstream users. So for you know permanent magnet makers or uh, uh, people who are making generators or batteries and they want to, uh, they're aware of the strategic nature of these elements and the fact that they're reliant on China for sort of 80% of the product, uh, something coming out of Kampala is going to be quite attractive, you think? I think so. I think um, to go into a bespoke small separator plant um, that could then feed a number of, of industries has a lot of attraction. We're not going to be um, hamstrung by a huge capital cost um, and so strategic partners will be, be fully aware of the attraction of a, an ionic clay product relative to a rare earth mineralised concentrate product. So there's a huge amount of attraction for, for downstream users um, and also, I mean, the, the reality is it's got a, a basket or a composition of the high-value rare earths. It's not made up of low-value um, stocking filler, you know, type rare earths like yeah. cerium and lanthanum. Sure. So in, in, um, uh, in Uganda, you're earning an interest in this project. Who's your partner in that project and how will each partner progress with respect to funding going forwards? So um, we are, as Ionic, we are earning into the, the holding company that owns the project in Uganda, Rowanzori Rare Metals. Rowanzori Rare Metals has a number of other partners, two based in Uganda and one based in South Africa. Um, Ionic will be earning up to 60% of the project. Um, and then beyond that, once we have completed a feasibility study and we've got a, um, a very well-defined, robust business case, then the partners as a group will come up with the funding um, relative to our, our holding. So, uh, Tim, the company recently raised funds, which sees it with about $3 million to invest in uh, in the project development, what's the budget for the rest of the year, including the upcoming drilling and evaluation work about which you've spoken? Does that include some sort of pilot or sort of benchtop type uh, chemistry uh, set up later in the year? 
Yeah, so the, the three million roughly that we're, we've um, been able to raise um, across the, I suppose even going back to earlier this year, um, that now sees us with a runway to do the work that we need to do over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, the bulk of the funds will be allocated towards um, the work in completing the drill program and, and increasing our stake, Ionic stake in the project uh, up uh, to 51% to complete the scoping study, upgrade the mineral resource, and then to lay a foundation for us for the next, um, the next phase of the project. Uh, we will look at options with additional test work, but my feeling, and I've, I've had this from early on, is that we could do a lot of test work on this project um, and it's going to continue to give us the same results. The better value for ourselves and the value for shareholders is actually moving as a business to a demonstration plant, and that would effectively be, I suppose, the, the, the point that, that I'll look to beyond completion of the scoping study. Um, we can make a demonstration plant dependent upon what sort of production targets we're looking for. Um, certainly the money that we've got is going to go a long way towards being able to, to set that up within Uganda. So, uh, Tim, a demonstration plant uh, you could potentially fund in a number of different ways, um, but going forward into full production, uh, do you think that the the downstream end users of rare earth elements would be interested in, you know, coming to the party as a, a funding partner or even a shareholder in in the overall venture? Oh, look, potentially all options are on the table. I think the other thing that um, a type of project like this with the low capital requirement to get into production means that we have so many options available to us. We're not looking to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. We're looking to raise a quantum of a, an order of magnitude lower. So dependent upon where we see the, the optimal economics of the project, we could, but we could very easily fund a small-scale commercial plant um, with a typical similar market capitalization to where we are now, so around that $20 million. Um, and, and it's going to be effectively multiples of that to, to increase production um, in, a, in a modular capacity. So it's a very low capital uh, intensity to get into production and then a very low operating cost. Um, and then we're rewarded with a high margin product. So you know, as a, as a project and when we compare ourselves against other rare earth hopefuls, um, we actually see ourselves as being something that's um, well within the grasp of being able to do within a, an accelerated timeline. So Yeah, I think you're right. You're, I mean, you're, you're quite right there because so many of the other uh, projects that we've seen around, you know, you're talking a billion dollars plus in many cases. So to be able to get up with sort of tens of millions of dollars rather than several hundreds of millions is, uh, is going to be a, a big advantage. And you can start small and, and work up to meet the market. That's exactly right. So, you know, we see it as a huge differentiator. Um, and when you're looking at the, the risk profile of trying to get a rare earth project up off the ground. Um, the risk of Chinese supply flooding markets and depressing rare earth prices. Um, when we look at you know, the risk for, for us as, as Ionic in developing Makutu, implementing a small scale modular type design 
to some degree insulates us from that risk. Um, yeah, indeed. Coupled with the fact that we're actually making a high-value product, uh, yeah. which is unlikely to be um, insul- is, is likely unlikely to be impacted by Chinese flooding heavy rare earth supply. Um, okay. It's easy to flood the, the, the light rare earth supply, um, but the declining reserves within China of their ionic clays mean that they are constrained as far as producing more heavy rare earths. Therefore, when you have a project like Makutu, which potentially has the ability to come online and inject a lot of new heavy rare earth and critical rare earth capacity into a, into a market, um, we see it as being significantly insulated from, from those risks. Great. Okay. Well, thanks today to Tim Harrison for joining us on this edition of Rock Yarn. And a big thank you to our segment producers, uh, Riley Duke and Georgia Rayson. Uh, You can stay in touch with us through our Stockhead website. And if you haven't already done so, remember to subscribe to our twice daily newsletter for ASX markets coverage, company profiles and industry insights. So thanks, Tim, again. Thanks, Peter. Great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I'm... uh Look forward to to catching up with you as we uh, continue to kick goals on the future.